You are listening to the Modern Life Podcast and can reach us at modernlifepod at gmail.com and on Instagram and Twitter at modernlifepod and find our episodes on modernlifepodcast.com. Just a quick update, we have been publishing two episodes per month and have a wonderful fall episode coming out later in September, but we will be taking a short break and reducing our publishing schedule until December when we will be back with our holiday episode and our anniversary episode. And if you have any recommendations for that holiday-themed episode, definitely let us know. But today I am covering The Age of Innocence with the hosts and creators of the Perks of Being a Book Lover podcast. You can find them on Facebook if you search for The Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover pod. You can find Amy at Amy's Reading Groupies and Carrie at Carrie Vitito on Instagram. And of course, you can find all this info in the description box. These two ladies are so smart, kind, and funny, and I want to thank them again for taking the time to come on our show. So let's get started with, as usual, our modern thoughts, and then dive right into the main topic. Thank you for listening. I want you to talk to me about May. Are you very much in love with her? As much as a man can be. Do you think there's a limit? So I am here today with Amy and Carrie. How are you two doing? Awesome. It's a Sunday morning. I've had my coffee. Amy even took a shower. I even took a shower. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie put on a bra. I'm real good. <laughs> wow. I feel so special right now. <laughs> so let's get started with our modern thoughts. I'm going to start with Amy. What's on your mind today? What have you got for us? Well, I know we're going to talk about a, a, another movie today, but I saw previews uh, a few days ago for the new uh, David Copperfield adaptation called The Personal History of David Copperfield, and they're doing some creative casting with it, and uh, Dev Patel is playing David Copperfield, who people may remember from Slumdog Millionaire, and it just looks really quirky and fun, and I'm super excited to see it. I guess my modern thought is that it's actually coming to a movie theater instead of being streamed on services that you can get, you know, through your own TV. And so I'm kind of struggling with myself as to whether I want to go out to a theater mm. to see it. I haven't been to a theater um, since the quarantine has started and I'd really like to go, but I have mixed feelings about it. And the funny thing is, even though I love movies before the pandemic, I didn't go to movie theaters all that much. I would go for really special movies that I thought you know, would definitely be better on on the big screen. And so I think just not having the option to go to a movie theater during the pandemic really makes me want to go now, but I'm also just a little nervous about it. So that's my modern thought is just this tension inside myself about whether I'm going to actually go to a movie theater to see the new David Copperfield adaptation. I'm surprised there's any open. There are some theaters that are open. They've been playing, you know, older movies, um, you know, past run or movies, you know, from the 80s or 90s, I guess, just for people who just want to experience of going to a movie theater. So there are a few open. Um, I just haven't gone. But I think this is one of the first ones. It's supposed to be in theaters. I even saw when I was looking on my phone that they're selling tickets for it. I think it's supposed to come out August 28th, but you can buy tickets for it online now for our local theaters. I know some people who've already seen it and they said they loved it. 
it's probably a lot of fun. But again, there's that thing of like, do I want to expose myself to other people? And yeah, I guess it's the the whole idea of if I end up getting sick as a result of seeing this, well, am I going to be mad? Or am I going to be <laughs> yeah. glad I saw it? You know? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but Carrie, what have you got up for us today? We're recording this on Sunday. And Friday night, I happened to notice we've got bunnies in our front yard. The mother bunny has four babies. And so I sat on my front porch for a very, very long time watching these four baby bunnies. And whether there is COVID and whether there's quarantining, this is like a good time for me. You know, like this is my Friday (laughs) night. This is high fun at my house. And so the thing that I noticed, though, is as I was watching these bunnies... You know, I had to get very quiet and I was paying attention. And eventually what I noticed is that I could hear their little tiny bunny uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like they would hop from, we have lava rocks. And so they would hop and I I could hear them hopping. And so I didn't have to rely on my eyes as much as my ears. And I guess my modern thought is that even though you know, with with COVID and people staying at home more. I don't know, like, how in tune with kind of silence and quiet Mm. and nature that people have really gotten, even though there's, like, more opportunities to do that. I don't know. Like, I sort of felt like I was getting in touch with, like, this deeper part of myself and, you know, like, how early man might have been listening for (laughs) things in nature. Um So I don't know. That was kind of my modern thought. Like we have these opportunities where we could get in touch with deeper, older parts of ourselves. And I'm not sure it's happening. You know, go listen to bunnies outside. It sounds like you had like a scene from an Ella Montgomery novel right there. (laughs) (laughs) Anna Green Gables. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. So like I said, I mean, I would have enjoyed that, you know, before COVID, but um, it just seemed especially poignant during COVID. Mm -hmm. So that's my modern thought. Um, So mine is about Hannah Gatsby's new special on Netflix. I don't know if you two are familiar with her. I have seen it. Yeah, I saw it maybe a month ago. Yeah, I loved it. And I saw it because Amy recommended it. Yeah, the... The new one is called Douglas. The format of the show in the beginning, she tells you everything that's going to happen in the show. So she outlines the show and she's like, oh, and then I'm going to say this thing, but you will have forgotten that I told you and you will be so surprised. And again, that was something I was like, I have never seen that before. And I don't know if it's going to work. And then she just weaved it in so perfectly And it was such a success. And also all of her art history jokes, because she's an art history major, are just phenomenal. And yeah, that's something to make you feel happy in these times. It's a new Hannah Gatsby special on Netflix. Yeah. (laughs) If you would have told me that I would find art history jokes hilarious, (laughs) you know, I don't know. A year ago, I would have said you're crazy. Not that I don't like art. I just have not seen a lot of, you know chuckle humor based on <laughs> art history but but she makes it ex- accessible i agree with you like even if you know nothing about it she presents it to you in a way that doesn't make you feel stupid mm-hmm. or that's a good one yeah i i uh, i love that special and i have a son who's on the autism spectrum so i really mm. um i just loved her perspective on it and sort of bringing awareness to people that there are people whose brains work a little bit differently but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that they're any less interesting or funny, you know, or anything else. So, That's true. yeah, I really yeah. love that. 
Yeah, but I think we're ready to talk about the Age of Innocence. Let's do it. So let me just give a brief summary. It's a novel written by Edith Wharton in 1920, for which she won a Pulitzer Prize, making her the first woman to do so. Wharton's story takes place in the 1870s New York and illustrates the stiff and unimaginative lives of the social elite. A protagonist, Newland Archer, is engaged to May Welland and a predictable and ordinary path is mapped out before him when May's cousin Ellen returns from Europe, fleeing from her husband. At first, Newland resents the scandal she could bring to this buttoned-up community, but then begins to develop feelings for her. Ellen tries to get a divorce, but the conventions of the time prevent her from going through with it. Though Ellen and Newland acknowledge feelings for one another, he marries May as is expected of him. They keep running into each other over the next few months until Ellen returns to Europe for good because she doesn't want to interfere in May's and Newland's marriage. 26 years later, with his kids grown and his wife dead, Newland gets one last chance to meet Ellen, yet he chooses to walk away, feeling that she's more real to him in his memory. The book was made into a film by Martin Scorsese, which came out in 1993. Though nominated for multiple awards, it was actually a box office failure. And I'm curious, what made you two choose this one? I don't know. Did we did we really have a thought process with this, Amy? <laughs> Uh, well, this was one that I had always wanted to read, and our book club had read a historical fiction novel this past year uh, that was set in the 1920s and 30s, and one of the characters, when she visited New York, was reading what the new book out was, which was The Age of Innocence, and that made me want then to even read the book more, because I had never read it, and so when you asked us... Um, to be on the show, I had suggested it to Carrie. And then when I saw that it was a Martin Scorsese film and that it had won an Academy Award for costume design, I thought, oh, well, that would be kind of fun. I didn't know that this was your first time reading the book. That's so exciting. Yes, neither one of us had read it or seen the movie. So you're getting totally fresh thoughts here on this book. I try to read Pulitzer Prize winning books. You know, I mean, I've definitely not even scratched the surface of them, but we just felt like that it would be a little more interesting and a little bit of brain work, intellectual brain work for us to delve into something that neither of us had read. So this is the only thing I had read by Wharton. I read it about a year and a half ago, and I had the experience with this book the same I had with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein where it's like every word is chosen perfectly. And like, it's just such a privilege to be able to read it. I mean, I don't know if you two enjoyed it, but this is one of those books where I'm like, oh, it's it's a perfect book. Like, there's nothing I would change about it. I feel like, so I teach uh, a lot of classic literature. And what I find is that, like, after reading it and seeing the movie, I feel like I need to go back because I feel like even though there were things that I got, there's so many, you know, like layers to it. And so I feel like there's just a lot that I didn't pick up. So I would really benefit from reading it a second or a third time. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I love history and historical fiction and things like that. And so the whole time period, the Gilded Age of New York mm, uh, mm -hmm. really uh, interested me. I got a little, uh, I went down a few rabbit holes, though, because she refers to so many um, different things that would have been common at the time, but the different kinds of carriages. And I was like Googling, what are the what are the differences between all these different kinds of carriages? And finally, I had to just kind of like let some of that go or I was never going to get through the book. But I, I really enjoyed it. At one point, Amy texted me and said, 
I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I'm getting hung up on carriages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the first time through, I I kind of fell in that romantic trap that the book tries to present to you, like it's a romance. And now rereading it or rereading just parts of it, I, I'm like, does Ellen even care for him that much? Like, I almost want like her part of the story because I feel like it's completely separate from what Newland is presenting to us. And that's something Wharton does consciously. You know, Newland comes off to me as like this douchey mansplainer. <laughs> and <laughs> did you do like the film at all? Because I have a lot of things that didn't work for me. Well, we had a conversation yesterday about Daniel Day-Lewis and and I don't know if it's about him or more about us but I made the statement that I find him a lot more attractive now as a man in his 60s you know when I when I was looking at that I was like like why was he such a hottie because you know at the time 19 I think 93 right so at the time he was 36 and I'm sure I found him hot then but I looking at him now I'm like eh, I don't see it I don't get it so I found him super annoying in the film. I, oh, I loved really? Michelle Pfeiffer in her character. And Winona Ryder, I, I, I thought she was good for the role, but I have just seen The Little Women from the 1990s as well a month or two ago. And I feel like it was almost the same, you know, a very similar, she played a very similar character mm. in those two movies. But yeah, he he just really annoyed me, his character. His portrayal of the character annoyed me. I liked Newland Archer in the book better than I liked Newland Archer in the film. Oh, interesting. When I looked up stuff about the motivation behind the film, I was like, I don't know if I can trust Martin Scorsese to really portray this book in a way that that makes sense to me because he said that the screenwriter approached him and suggested that this should be like a romantic piece um, that he needed to film. It, de it deals with love that's like unrequited, but unconsummated is what he said. And then I'm wondering, does Scorsese understand the irony of this character? You know, <laughs> it's not really a romantic. I feel like he presents it as this romantic story between these two people. And it misses a lot of layers from the book. At least that was my feeling from from watching the film. It had a soap opera-esque feel to me. I mean, made me sort of laugh and think, well, this is kind of cheesy, which I didn't expect to feel for a Martin Scorsese, for a Martin Scorsese film. Like when he would do close-ups of their hands on top of one another, like I guess he was trying to highlight like the only way that they could sort of show their lust for each other was the touching of the hands or, you know, things like that. But it, it felt just a little bit soap opera-esque yeah, to me. Yeah, they were not just close-ups on hands. They were close-up on every single prop that he got no matter if it was appropriate or not every fan every hairpin every i'm like i'm what do you want from me giving out like golden stars for you finding all these props like i don't care like, i feel like that's a mistake some filmmakers do with period drama where they're like they let the world take over they mm -hmm. kind of get so in love with like oh uh, the carriages and all this other stuff and it loses the humanity and i feel like that's what happened with this film that the few times that there was an annoying voiceover or narration, which is something Scorsese always likes to do, and the actors actually got to showcase their talent. I was like, those were the moments I really clung to. I was like, just let the actors do their thing. I don't know why you're reading the book to me. Like, it's a <laughs> film. Like, 
show don't tell i got i don't know the narration did not work for me in this movie i don't know if it did for you too but yeah it it felt it felt jarring to yeah. me i was reading a couple things after watching the movie i mean there's a narrator you know it's it's from you're seeing newland's perspective but it's still like a narrator who's not newland but i didn't feel like it was jarring in the book mm-hmm. but it felt like almost like how a fairy tale might be but not endearing <laughs> yeah in, in the way a fairy That's tale a good might be. comparison mm-hmm yeah, I found it really odd, and I found it odd, too, and maybe, I mean, maybe it shouldn't really make any difference, but because the book is primarily, you see it sort of from Newland's point of view, I found it strange that the narrator was a woman. I was yeah. thinking that it would be a man. Now, Joanne Woodward, who is the narrator, she has a very nice sort of comforting voice. I enjoyed her voice as the narrator, mm-hmm. but I just, I was curious why they chose to have a female narrator over a male narrator yeah i agree i had a few critic reviews that i found i so agree with here's one by mark Sovlov. he says the film has no substance it leaves you with the feeling of having enjoyed a lovely meal fit for royalty only to discover too late that the fruit was made of wax <laughs> and the roast was little more than a styrofoam mock-up and and that's how i felt like he sucked all the life out of the story and was just like i need to show you every single item of food in like quick shots that they're consuming and i'm like no you don't need to show me that like it's such a clumsy way of showing the society's all about appearance and all about looks. You know, I feel like there was a more subtle, like if I'm watching a Jane Austen adaptation, do I need a close up of every bonnet? <laughs> I think this is one of his only period dramas. The only one I can think of is maybe Gangs of New York, which has a very different feel to it. And I just don't know if he's an adept filmmaker to work in that genre. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't impressed with his take on period drama. I think it's interesting if you think of a lot of his films take place in New York, and this one also takes place in in New York, but it's mm-hmm. a totally different, obviously, time period, but also feel to it. But I read a review, or not a review, I read an interview with Martin Scorsese, and he said he thought that this might be the most violent film that he ever made. What does that mean? He was talking about, like, you know, his characters in Raging Bull and Taxi Driver, the anger or the pent-up rage that they felt about the situation they were in, they could just punch something, right? Where in this society, Newland Archer might have this pent-up anger about the fact that he couldn't marry who he wanted to marry, but there was nothing really that he could do about it. I think what he said was there's a brutality under the strict manners of that time period. I don't know. That was an interesting thing to say. I mean, I mean, I've seen several Martin Scorsese films and I wouldn't I wouldn't call this, you know, it's not brutal or violent in the way that we think of brutality or violence. But Hmm. I thought that was kind of interesting. I can see him saying that of the book. I don't know if this adaptation accomplished that feeling of of rage. I'm trying to think now. I don't know. I don't really see Daniel Day-Lewis look like he's... I mean, he seems like he's pained, right? Like, sort of, like, lovesick. I don't know that I see him angry. I hmm. I think what the movie helped me see, and and I think it ties in to, to this conversation about violence, there were things I noticed, not so much about Newland, but, like, about May... And mm-hmm. some of the other characters, I, it was this subtle viciousness in May and in, like, Newland's sister and his mother. Mm-hmm. And I don't, 
I don't know that I totally picked up on that from the book, you know, having read it just one time. But seeing the movie and then thinking about the book in comparison, it made me see, you know, that there was the only word I can describe is kind of this viciousness, but it was this, it was vicious, but with this gleam of nicety over it. And Mm. so I didn't see anything. I didn't see Newland having like a rage response to his situation. I could see more the almost like the daggers Mm. being, shot at him now I don't know had I just seen the movie on its own I don't know that I would have necessarily had that same thought that is such a good point because I think that is something the movie does really well at the end is that scene and I hadn't associated it with what Amy just said but the final dinner it's just a farewell dinner but you see all the plotting and the machinations going on as it's happening and he realizes oh everybody thinks that we're having an affair and he kind of makes an idiot of himself and then you have that scene of them by the fireplace when everyone's left and she almost tells him that she was kind of plotting with you know telling Ellen that she was pregnant two weeks before even though that she wasn't really sure if she really was pregnant and I love that in the film I love it in the book because it's just like yeah May's boring and uninteresting but she's a survivor and she's gonna do what she has to do to save her marriage and it's just this moment of such respect for May as a character when you weren't sure if you really could take her seriously before as a player. That dinner, I actually found kind of creepy. It was almost like, I mean, the way she describes it in the book, but also I think the narrator's talking through that scene. It's almost like a group think, like with everyone at that party, except for <laughs> except for Newland, that they're sort of almost like ganging up on him and he doesn't mm-hmm. even know it until the last minute, yeah. you know? And yeah, it was it was a little eerie almost so did either of you and not so much in the movie but in the book and I didn't notice it until further on but how the book starts with them seeing Faust on Mm -hmm. stage when I finally like I read that at the beginning and didn't think about it but then they see Faust later like another performance and I was like true Oh, Faust, that is so, you know, like, that's so on point for his situation. And really, a a lot of people in New York society, you know, like, I hadn't thought about that at all. Okay, you've got to clarify, because I don't know what I don't, I've never read Faust. What's Faust about? So Faust is is basically, it's the story of uh, an individual who sells their soul. To, to the devil. I mean, that's, you know, if you say that somebody made a Faustian bargain, that's what they've done. You know, they've, they've made a choice and they've given up everything, essentially, for... Something in return, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, when I read the book and it starts and all of them, that's where they are. They're seeing a performance of Faust. Like, I just kind of glanced over it, but then later they're they're doing the same thing again and i was like oh i get it because i you know that's the thing it's like and it's not just newland it's it's so many of them you like what have they given up in order to have wealth and reputation and all this stuff and mm. so and and i don't know i mean i sort of wish the the movie had sort of i don't know made that a little more clear i guess and and maybe, you know, people who like 
love Faust would pick up on it right away, but I didn't from the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's really smart. That's a good point. So the ending of the book, when I first read it, I was like, oh my God, why is he walking away? Like, why is he not going up? Because I feel like I fell completely in this trap of me seeing everything through Archer's eyes and like what actually is the truth. And that's how I feel like Martin Scorsese got stuck there and didn't examine like all the rest of the cues where Newland thinks he's like separate from the society that he lives in. And the only one who really got out or is trying to get out is Ellen. And he keeps making suggestions like, let's just get away. Like, and he's and she's like, oh, do you want me to be your mistress? And he's like, oh, you don't have to say it so crassly. And she's like, well, that's that's what you're suggesting here. And he's like, this is what my favorite line from the book. He says, oh, I'm beyond all that. And she goes, you've never been beyond, but I have. And I know what it looks like there. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. she's so firmly rooted in reality. And he is just stuck in this idea of, what he wants the world to be in his fantasy, like when he has her right in front of her, but he makes all these conditions of like, oh, I'm only going to talk to her if she turns around or (laughs) like when he says, oh, it's like you happen to me all over again every time. It sounds romantic, but what he's saying is like, oh, I don't recognize you every time I see you. I think it's because he has a fantasy version in his mind that doesn't correspond with who Ellen actually is. And they have that scene in the movie, too, of the parasol, where he thinks it's like frilly pink parasol is her parasol. And he starts like, you know, picking it up and holding it close to him. And it's just one of those symbols for me of like, she would not have that parasol and he doesn't even realize it. Like, he doesn't know her at all, really. Well, it's funny you should say that because I watched the movie a couple days ago with a friend of mine who had not read the book. And early on in the movie, she's like... What is the connection? Why are they even like in in love with each other? Because I don't mm. think that they really, especially in the movie, like build that up at all. It's almost like an insta love situation. And I guess I would say I think it's because Ellen is not like the other women in society there. She has interests and in art. She says what she thinks. She doesn't necessarily abide by all the rules. And there's a little piece of him that's a little bit like that, too, even though he does mm-hmm. obey most of the rules. Uh, and I think that he's attracted to that. But they don't really go into sort of developing why they would be so attracted to each other immediately, besides just looks. I mean, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. there's some connection there well and i think the the thing is about about newland not seeing ellen for who she is he doesn't see any i mean he doesn't Uh, even notice that about his wife he thinks of her kind of in the box that he's created like this is what may is and she's this way and no other way and so because he sort of done that with people in society and in his life, he, you know, that's why he's so shocked when it's like, oh, whoa, May, you know, May's lying yeah. and conniving and this kind of stuff. I mean, so it, mm. it's really kind of on par with what he does in general and why he doesn't see himself uh, as a pawn in some of the in some of the things that happens in the story. Like he thinks he's in control, but he's not. You know, and so I, I just feel like he's very um, distracted by the illusions of things. Illusion, yeah. Because even when he has opportunities to take control, he doesn't take them. Mm-hmm. 
Did you notice there was a scene, it was a dinner party. I'm trying to remember what dinner party it was. And Ellen comes in and she is in like this crimson dress and everybody mm -hmm. else is wearing black. And then when May comes in, she's wearing like this virginal white mm -hmm. gauzy dress. And I thought there was... And it's her wedding dress. Yes, because I thought that was interesting that they were supposed to wear them several times. But I think this is actually before they got married, wasn't it? I'm thinking mm. that the dinner party is before they got married. Maybe I'm wrong. No, you're right. Later mm. on, she wears that wedding dress with the blue bows on it. And in the beginning, they just wrap her in diaphanous twill. <laughs> like that's like yes. all she's wearing. Yes. Her costumes later on become so nice. Like when she has that conversation with Newland, like, oh, are we breaking up? Or that archery costume she has is incredible. Mm. But I actually thought the first few costumes, the really virginal ones, like you said, I was like, it was one of those things where I'm like, it's too over the top, Marty. Like, just tone it down. <laughs> like, we get it. <laughs> well, it was sort of like the virgin versus the whore, you know, yeah. um, paradox that people talk about. And I feel like Newland has that himself, no? Oh, yeah. Like, when he creates all these images of people and he loves May for being ignorant and for being, you know, she doesn't know anything. Yet later on, that's what annoys him about her. And with Ellen, it's almost flipped. And then what's funny is then at the end, May's the one who's sort of tricked him. And Ellen's really the one that's, I mean, not necessarily virginal, but like is more... She's true. True. Or she's honest. Because yeah. there's a part later on that I'd forgotten about and I was rereading passages. And I think this is right before they meet in the gallery or the museum and they have that kind of private conference between the two. And she suggests, oh, should I just come to you one night? And then that's it. Right before that, he goes on this whole little rigmarole about how people who cheat are like evil and he would never do that. And, <laughs> you know, he has these like ideas of the society that he lives in that are so internalized by him. And he just seems like one of those bros who can't realize that like his behavior is exactly what he hates, you know, and he always makes excuses for himself like, oh, it's different for us. And like, I don't know. He's just a little slimy at times. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's easy for him to to not see that behavior in himself because yeah. he's not self-aware in that way. There was a detail in the beginning where it just says New York City and then it says 1870s. This is the text that pops up and there's an apostrophe in 1870s, which is incorrect. And it was one of those little details where it's like, we're not starting off on a strong <laughs> foot here. Like, we already have a typo. Like, and then I was reading reviews and somebody else actually brought it up. And I was like, okay, I'm not just being, <laughs> like, annoying. But it was Jonathan Rosenbaum. And he said, that superfluous apostrophe doesn't exactly inspire confidence that Scorsese's the ideal interpreter of Edith Wharton. And then what I also love is him saying, it's one thing for her in the midst of a 362-page novel to describe a dinner but it's quite another in a 133 minute movie to highlight each of these items that they eat in a separate decorously lit and framed shot and ended his review with saying it's a very noble failure and I think that sums up my feelings on this movie it's like he tried so hard and some things just didn't quite work out for me yeah and the food didn't even look appealing no, it didn't. It looked very strange. I did like the little detail of there's a montage of servants preparing food, which went on for way too long. But there's these people carrying uh, terrapin turtles, 
over to oh, the house, right. which yeah. is something they would have eaten. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's a cool little detail because that's something I'll always notice in period dramas. If the food they're eating is like if it's too big, because I know you just went to the supermarket and got apples, but like apples weren't grown to that size back in the day. And it's <laughs> it's just me being the most annoying viewer. But like, I just thought it was interesting that they actually put that in there. Like, oh, they would have been eating these turtles. Yeah. I, I still keep thinking about the ending. What What is the significance, do you think? Like, he's looking up at the window and the the servant closes. You know, he sees the reflection. It reminds him of, hmm. of seeing her at the water. Like, why, why do you think? I mean, do you think there's any significance to that? Is it kind of like the parasol situation where he thinks he has this, like, because you're expecting Ellen to be at the window, right? But mm. it's just this, like, manservant. It's just, like, mundane life. But in Newland's mind, it's just, like, he has this idea of what should happen, but it's not uh, really reality. Yeah, and kind of like you said, where he was like, if she turns and looks at me... And maybe that's what he was thinking. If she comes to the window, then I'll yeah. go up. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of yeah. like he did where, where they were at the water. If she turns before the boat gets past, you know, then I'll go to her. Um, or then I'll tell her, whatever. So I didn't connect the dots, I guess, until right this second. Did you think it was unusual, and this is in the book and in the movie, it was unusual that May would tell her son on her deathbed sort of that their father really loved somebody else? I guess I'm just thinking of the time period and everybody sort of having secrets and not really wanting to say what really happens. Now, obviously, she's on her deathbed, so maybe... You know, she's like, this is my last chance. But I thought that was a little unusual that Teddy would sort of know that his father had harbored this secret longing for this woman who was not his mother. Well, I don't know. Like with May telling him, telling Teddy that your father stayed and he could have left. And Newland says, I was never given the choice. She never asked me. She never what, asked yeah, me. She never, she asked, never me. asked me. There's a disconnect with that, too, because that's not really the truth. But even with Newland, I mean, he could have broken. He could yeah. have said, I love Ellen and I'm going mm-hmm. off and I'm going to become a man of the world and renounce my reputation and my money. I mean, so neither of them were really honest. And is it also strange for me to say that? Like, it, again, it doesn't fit into the box that we have for me. Like that she would at the end tell her son that is almost, I don't know, it's like another surprise. But I don't quite know what to make of that either. Uh, I mean, maybe that's the thing. They all sort of, they all have their illusions. I mean, the whole the whole book is about the illusion of New York society and like what you see versus what is underneath and what's real and what people feel. And so May would be, she's a part of that society. So Newland did it, but but so did all of them. You know, mm-hmm. they they sort of mm-hmm. kept up how they want it to appear to others. And then there was the real self. Yeah. So, And it's nice to have Ellen as a character as kind of that one pillar that goes against all that. And I love the scenes where she doesn't even realize she's doing that. And then later on when she becomes more used to New York society, especially when they have that conversation in the carriage... And he's like, what about us? And she's like, dude, like, there's no us. Like, you're married. Like, we're both married. And he's like, let's just get away. And she's like, where? Where? Like, what What are you talking about? And it's it's just nice to have, like, that one character be, like, 
the voice of reason, mm-hmm. I guess, in this whole veneer and facade that they've built built up for each other. Like the reality of, okay, we can leave all this and we'll be broke. Like we'll have nothing and we've never had nothing. Yeah. It's like you don't, you can't even go there when you've had everything. How do you, how do you imagine having nothing in any kind of realistic way? Yeah, I agree. Have you guys looked into Edith Wharton at all? Who she was as a person? I did look her up this morning a little bit. And it's funny how uh, many aspects of her life are kind of in this book. You know, she, she was born into a very wealthy family. She married a man who was... I think like 13 or 14 years older than her. It was an unhappy marriage and she divorced him and then went to live in Paris. Yeah, her story is almost like Ellen's story. But I also found out all these things about her. Like she was just not a nice person. She was against, she was against women's rights, against suffrage. She, like all her other writer friends, like Henry James, she kind of didn't want to speak to their wives. She comes off to me as a person who like, is not like the other girls. You know, who like needs to be different from other women and just this very snobbish behavior. And I thought it was interesting that in modern times, there's this feminist take on the novel, which she does put those themes in there. Like we do resonate with Ellen's character and what she's going through. And it it is almost a feminist struggle that she herself lived, yet she was so against it in her actual life. And I can't quite put those two things together in my mind. She was feminist for herself, but wasn't actually a feminist for any other women, sort of. Especially because she was so rich and privileged. She was like the Karen of her time. Like, that's how <laughs> that's how I saw her. Because there was one account I found of her, like, writing to the manager because one of the clerks wouldn't lend her an umbrella. And I'm like, oh, come on. You know, she's on here, like, leaving bad Yelp reviews. Like, that's the kind of person she is. <laughs> She was also an authority on, I think, she wrote books about architecture and gardens and interior design and travel. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so, like, all the little details that she puts in her books about the the silver and the, you know, the paintings and, and things that are decorating the homes, you know, she would have firsthand knowledge of all of those things. And, you know, maybe that's why she put all those details in there. I also couldn't find any pictures of her without little dogs in them. Oh, yes, she was a dog lover. Yeah. I I don't know. Like, now Karen is the word for, you know, annoying women. Maybe at the time, Edith, at some point, was the name for annoying women. Maybe that was a thing. They would say, she's being an Edith. Um, Also, something that I actually really loved in the movie that I wish the movie actually had more scenes that were made up and not taken straight out of the book because I like when a film is a little more imaginative with the source material. But it's the scene where when they first meet, Ellen holds out her hand to him like he has to kiss it, but he shakes her hand. And Mm -hmm. there's this disconnect between the two. And then later on, they shake hands because she approaches him to shake his hands first. And they have this moment of like laughing about it. And it's so sweet. And it's just the actor's being really good actors and it's just this lovely moment between the two and I thought that was a perfect setup to what is actually in the book which is right after he persuades her not to get a divorce he kisses her hand and it's described as like her cold hand I didn't notice that yeah I didn't either but I you're right that this movie really follows the book extremely Mm -hmm. 
closely. Yeah. There's not as, you know, there's some characters that aren't emphasized as much, like the French tutor, who's the secretary for Ellen's husband. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, he plays a much larger role in, in, in the book. Do we think he really, that they had an affair? That Ellen and the and the assistant had an affair. I mean, that was the implication. That's why she couldn't get divorced because there there was rumors that she actually was then living with the secretary after she left her husband. I'm leaning towards no because yeah. I think that is one of the accusations that her husband puts in this infamous letter that he sends to the lawyers, and she ends up saying to Newland, "There's there was nothing of truth in there. There's nothing in there that could have hurt me. I only didn't get a divorce because I didn't want to bring scandal to you in May." I lean towards no, also, but yeah, but I think the thing is, it doesn't it doesn't actually matter, and I think that was right. You know, it's like for a woman. Or well, really anybody probably in that society, it it doesn't really matter whether you did it or whether you didn't do it. You know, again, it's that illusion of what you might have done. It, you know, the same way that everybody thinks that Newland and Ellen, right? They think they consummated their relationship. They never did anything of the sort. But it's what it's what people believe they did. I don't know. Like in a way, I wonder why why they didn't actually act on things they wanted to do because it didn't matter whether they did it. didn't matter, yeah. I think in Newland, I don't know, like, is that because of, you know, virtue or is that because of fear? Hmm. Well, they were ready to act on it had May not told Ellen that she was pregnant, don't you think? I mean, he gave her his key and I mean, they were going to have this one magnificent night together. (laughs) Before she went away. (laughs) I wonder though, if even if May hadn't interfered like would it have happened i have doubts because newland never takes any action yeah and like i think he's a person who is f- somewhat frustrated by the that very rigid society and had a lot of dreams of sort of doing whatever he wanted but yet he really couldn't that society everybody is kind of like everybody else you mm-hmm. know and he really just couldn't leave it but you know he had this little spark that wanted to go off and do his own thing just the way ellen was able to do yeah maybe you're right maybe he wouldn't have ever done it something to think about yeah so (laughs) this movie won for costumes which i think is deserved um but it was also nominated for best adapted screenplay and score uh the the screenplay again it sticks too closely to the book for me i don't find it revolutionary in any way the score, they had one song that they used over and over, and I got very tired of it, except for one instance where they just threw Enya in there, and I was like... <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that, and I thought, is that an Enya song? I haven't heard Enya in years. <laughs> yeah, very, very strange. I also thought that the cuts were sometimes... Jarring. Jarring, disjointed. Like the, the mm. everything was a sweeping shot when she's like, oh, it, it's all coming back to me. And she does this hand movement with her fan. And then the camera follows the fan going over the audience. And I'm like, just very strange to, to look at or to be a spectator in this. And like when he kisses her shoe, we don't see him approaching her or bending down or... <laughs> It was strange, yeah. It was yeah, strange. I, I was taken aback by that one. I'm like, what is he doing? Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. No. I, I don't know. Like, there's, It seems like when a book is adapted into a movie, maybe this is just my perception, but it seems like there's this huge swath of people that just get very irate 
if the movie doesn't gel with the book. I mean, they expect almost the the movie to be an absolute retelling mm-hmm. of the book. And I don't know. Like, I wonder if, if filmmakers feel a certain amount of pressure to, you know, like, the, like they don't have as much creative license in some things because it seems like there's a lot of people, you know, that just they lose their minds if a book or if a movie tries to veer in any way. I think that might be the case with certain what like Harry Potter's or, or or books where people there's you know huge numbers of fans. I don't think The Age of Innocence is one of those books. <laughs> but yeah, the Carrie, I do call those people the Tom Bombadils of fans <laughs> because they're the people who watch The Lord of the Rings and are like, this is bad because not every single character from Tolkien's like <laughs> manifesto is in this movie. And I'm like, there's no time. Like that's not how films are made. I sort of like it when. I don't know, like, it gives me more to think about if a movie does some things that are a little bit different, because it makes me think differently about the Mm -hmm. book, and I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, so I I don't fall into that camp of people who are like, it must be identical! (laughs) I agree. Um, But did you two have anything else about this book or the film? Anything else you wanted to say? I don't think so. I really enjoyed the book. I I didn't love the movie, but I enjoyed watching the movie and thinking about all these things so that we could discuss them. Yeah, I I think it's good. I wouldn't say to somebody, oh, go watch the Age of Innocence movie. (laughs) But, you know, but at the same time, if somebody was thinking about reading the book, then I would probably tell them, you know, maybe do one first and then the other and I don't really have a preference which way they would do it but I do think even if it's not like the best movie er ever I do think having the visual I don't know makes makes your thinking on it and the things Mm -hmm. that you can get you know intellectually or emotionally I think they kind of feed each other so even if the movie isn't fantastic I think there are things that you can get from it that enhance your understanding of of why it won the Pulitzer. So that's my two cents. The person that I watched it with had not read the book and she did I had to stop several times in the movie and sort of explain some back history to her that was in the book. And I do wonder if you haven't read the book and it follows it so faithfully in so many ways, but that maybe you wouldn't completely understand why things mm. are happening in the movie unless mm. you had read the book. Yeah, that is a good point. But Um, Thank you so much for talking about The Age of Innocence with me and tell people where they can find you and tell them about your podcast. Well, you can find us on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod. Um, And we're on all the major podcast platforms. We drop our episodes on Wednesdays and we're on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. I think that's it. I love your podcast, especially the one... You just did one where you interviewed the owner of the Cincy Book Bus. Yeah, Melanie. Which is a traveling uh, bookshop that operates out of a bus. And I never even heard of it. Um, Also because I don't live in that area. But just the owner's process of getting this together and how she gets all these books and curates them. And especially now she's like donating all this money and all these books to like schools and like it was like my happy place listening to that episode so some really good stuff you get some really cool people on there on your show thank you so much 
Yeah, it's fun. We get to meet a lot of really cool people doing that podcast. But yeah, thank you again. And hope everything goes well with your podcast. And I wish you much success. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having us. He would see her again at the theater or a reception. Perhaps he might be seated next to her. Perhaps they might have another time alone somewhere. But he could not live without seeing her.